1961, a 22-year-old college dropout starts a small pasteurization plant in Parma, Italy. The company continuously grows and in 40 years develops into a multinational giant listed on the Milan Stock Exchange with a valuation of 3.7 billion euro. Although the firm employed over 30,000 people in 30 countries, it still kept a strong presence in its original town, such as by purchasing the Parma Football Club. However, in the early 2000s, suspicions began to arise that Callisto Tanzi, the CEO of Parmalat, and his chief accountant were cooking books to hide excessive debt. Parmalat continuously failed to raise 300 million euro to pay its creditors and in 2003, Bank of America released documents showing 3.95 billion euro as a forgery. Tanzi resigned and was detained by the police in late December, after which he admitted that there was a whole of 8 billion euro in Parmalat's accounts. Several of the firm's subsidiaries went bankrupt and hundreds of thousands of investors lost money, which they would never recover. After a series of disputes, the new Parmalat management recovered around $700 million from various banks and auditing firms for negligence and aiding in the fraud. These firms included Deloitte, Bank of America and Grand Thornton. Welcome to Corrupt Money. Today, I would like to welcome Professor Andrea Melis. He is a professor of corporate governance and management accounting at the University of Cagliari. Professor Melis serves as a screening editor for corporate governance and international review, and as an editorial board member of the Financial Accounting and Reporting Special Interest Group of the British Accounting and Finance Association. His research has been published in international outlets such as the British Accounting Review, International Business Review, or the Journal of Business Ethics. Welcome, Professor. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for your invitation, Jonas. It is a pleasure. Before we start with going deep into the Parmalat scandal, how significant was the company for the Italian and global market before the scandal actually happened? Well, it was a major company. Okay? It was basically a top 10 on the national level in Italy, a national leader in its industry, and a global player with activities with over 200 subsidiaries in more than 40 countries was basically a global player. Think about something very, a very important company in its industry, but not only in, the, in its industry, okay. In the dairy industry, was it one of the biggest in Italy? It was the biggest at the time, and it was one of the largest in Europe at the time. Okay, did it expand to the overseas market as well? Yes, it, they expanded in Latin America. Uh, they were one of the major players in, Latin, in Brazil, for example, but they have subsidiaries all around the world, in North America, in Canada, in Asia, everywhere, you, you name it, you got it. It was a major, it is and it was an Italian company, very Italian from some issues, because headquarters in Italian, all the board directors are full of Italian citizens, but their player, it was a global player. Could you summarize the, the Parmalet scandal briefly? Oh, sure. Basically, the Parmela collapsed at the, in December 2003. That's history now, okay. But with 14 billions, thousands of millions, okay, euros, 
in the, they were recorded in their the assets, but then did not existed. So they were forged, basically. How did this happen? There was basically the case in point there was a four billion euro bank account held by Bonlat, which was a subsidiary of Parmalat in the Cayman Island. That money was reported in the consolidated annual report, but now we know it didn't exist. So that was like the case in point. But the fraud lasted for at least 12 years, if not more. So we have now evidence that the fraud lasted at least since 2000. How is it possible that it took so long to discover? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point. And that's, I think, what makes Parmat very special. I'm sure you know the saying, you may fool people for a time, you can fool a part of the people for all the time, but you cannot fool all the people for all the time. Well, Parmat proved it wrong. Okay. Because that's what I found was very extremely interesting in Parmat, that they were able to, to hide the situation for such a long time. And what was really surprising to me, that at the time that the fraud was, was discovered, they were planning to issue a very large bond that would probably cover up all the money for 25 years. So I'm not if they were able to issue that bond before the scandal, probably we wouldn't be here talking about the Parmela scandal. Okay, they would cover it up. It is fascinating, you know, because Parmela was a global player, but a very family-owned company on this, at the same time. You have the founder who was a chair of the board of directors and was the CEO of the board of directors. Three people in the family were members of the board of directors. So with some of the previous employees or some of the best friends were there. So it was very close network. That's probably the way that they were able to hide it together with, of course, with some close eyes in some other situation. Parmela was very well respected. The CEO of Parmela was extremely well respected, was a cavalier of the Knights of the Republic. So it was someone that people will listen, like talking about business ethics. And that probably helped to hide the fraud sometimes. Because it was unbelievable. So did he have um, close ties to the community as well, to the people, to the customers? Indeed. I will provide you two anecdotal evidence about that. The first one was he owned the Pamela Football Club, okay, which is a local football club. At the time, it was very good. That's, if you want to support from your local community, and you own the football club, your football club is doing very well. That's the way in Italy, but I'm sure in the UK as well. It's a very good way to manage the impression, the perception of the, the local community. Okay. They were very good in, in charities and every all these sort of things. He trained himself as a very strong Catholic. So he said that social issues are very important to him. Okay. And, and another and a lot of evidence is that if you're an investor, And you have a problem, of course, what you do, you probably now, you send an email to an investor relation. No, at Parmalat, you could talk to the CEO directly. Okay, that was the way that he tried to manage the situation. He did it for a very long time. With such good connections to the community, what led uh, Mr. Tanzi, the, the CEO, to start with the scheme? Did they have problems with the business and did they need to make money quickly? Or was it, let's say, pure greed? on the part of the owner? Well, it is difficult to say eventually, but uh, it is probably more pressure than greed in this time. Uh, Parmalat have, was facing major problems. They started because, well, they started a very long time ago, in, in talking about 1986, Chermolite crisis, which got nothing to do with Parmalat at the beginning, okay? Because that's in Ukraine. 
But the general sentiment of the people in Europe at the time was that milk could be contaminated. So people started not buying milk for their three children, basically. What was the relationship with Parmela? Parmela was the largest, one of the largest producers of milk in Europe. So they have a major drop in sales and they decided to go public after some years. A couple of years later, they decided to go public because they needed to raise funds, basically. Then they have some problems in Latin America because of the change between euros and US dollars. They basically have costs in euros and sales in US dollars. And with the exchange rate, they have a lot of financial pressure. So they become more and more in debt. So they started to do some creative accounting, I mean legal stuff, but not very true and providing a true and fair view in that sense. And then they started copying the book. That's quite typical. I mean, because you start misleading investor in a legal way, but then you know, need to cover it up. And then you need to do something else. And then you need to, do, the hole is bigger and bigger. What I think, well, that's my personal opinion, is that they started with somehow with, let's wait for the good times. So, okay, that's my company. I founded in 1960s. We already be, we've always been successful. It's just a very limited time of crisis. Let's cover it up and then things will be better, get better. And then you realize that you're getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And worse. That seems like such an um, ordinary story in the, in the scope of financial crime. I mean, you could apply the same thing maybe to Wirecard, to Charles Ponzi, to Bernie Madoff. Um, a lot of people who, who went into financial crime and maybe cooking the books as well, uh, they started because there was a crisis that they needed to overcome. And they told themselves that uh, they would end the scheme once the times would get better. But it's a path-dependent approach, which you can't really stray from too easily. So compared to other cases of financial crime, such as in Europe, how similar was Parmalet to those? Well, you, you name the Wirecard wire scandal, which is the very, one of the latest ones. Uh, and uh, I'm not an expert about the Wire scandal. What it happened, I have a look some da- some data just because I was curious, I just a personal curiosity, and I found fascinating some similarity with the Parmalat scandal. Okay, because what you find, you find poor corporate governance, weak board directors, very charismatic CEO. Okay, you have a, charis- a CEO that people tend to trust, and they may they become a problem. They may become a problem sometimes, and then when you have a scandal, is when you realize that become a problem. You, they have pressure to perform extensive use of creative accounting, meaning legal techniques to use to mislead investors. You start legally, and then up to a certain moment, you need to change. And also, let's put it in this way, the similar environment, a naive financial analyst. Let's, let's call them naive, okay? So the, yes, there are many similarities. Parmalat, my idea when I started working on analyzing Parmalat, it was my question was, but is it really an Italian typical scandal? Because if it is an Italian typical scandal, okay, we have a problem in Italy, but we need to sort it out. But the solution would be easy. Let's try and see what the other countries are doing. Okay. And then you can import best practice. But if it is not a typical Italian scandal, then you have a larger problem, basically. And probably it is even larger because some countries don't, do not realize that they may have in their own countries as well. My conclusion at the time was, yeah, it is not a typical Italian scandal, okay? And uh, I'm not, like, happy that I was right, because it is like when you are a tornado chaser, okay? And you see a tornado, and, of course, you know they have a lot of social consequences, okay? But you're absolutely happy because you were right. Your theory was proven, okay? 
And unfortunately, in the last 15 years in Europe, we did have a lot of other scandals. So, yeah, it's quite similar in somehow from other scandals. So that's why I think it's important we can, we can learn from it. Going on to the topic of learning from the scandal, what do you think was the mistake or were the mistakes that regulators and authorities made before the scandal happened? Well, I think that, first of all, the, it was, you cannot only blame the authorities. I think we also, the blame should be like more into also the investors as well and financial analysts. Because, I mean, if you, if, if you are investing in a company, you know that the company has a founder who is also the CEO, who is also the chair, and he was also the major blockholder. They had 50% point something, okay, I think. You know that's a red flag. I'm not saying that's going to be a fraud, okay, but you know it's a red flag. You know that someone with a lot of power that may use that power in his own interest, okay. If you are an institutional investor, you should know that you're managing other people's money and that you may be, that you may be expropriated somehow, okay. So you really need to pay a lot of attention to it. I'm not sure they did, okay. There is very limited evidence that they did. Only once one institutional investor, Hermes, at the time, file a complaint and ask for more information about some transactions, okay? But apart from that, well, absolutely silence. If you have a look at, and I did uh, on the financial analyst reports, okay, the great majority of them always say, buy the company, buy the company, buy those shares, but everything is fine. Uh, until one year before the scandal, when the Merrill Lynch London office said, oh, there might be, looks like there's some problem at Parmalat, okay? But then, the rest of the community kept saying, sell, never. Only very few analysts, only few analysts, one month before the scandal, but that was after the external auditor said, we, we are not able to, to audit the, the permanent financial statement, okay? I do remember seeing one fun, international financial analyst who basically said, oh, I suggest you to buy the shares medium risk, okay? If, that's medium risk, what high risk, okay. 20 days later, there was a collapse. So, okay, so, so I think there is a lot of people that they probably should have paid more attention. If Parmanat has a very bad corporate governance, even if you take into account the best practice of the time, okay. I mean, yeah, they had an audit committee, but the audit committee, they had one of the personal friends, the CEO there, and they also had this chief financial officer there. Okay, if you want to have someone independent, no, there were no independent directors. We know there's a red flag. Do you think this is something that could be solved with maybe stronger regulation? I think stronger regulations are important, but also softer law in sense of corporate government best practice, and much more attention by institutional investors. I mean, if you're a private investor, I don't expect you to to be willing and able to, you know, be a, serve as a watchdog. But if you're an institutional investor, I think it's part of your duty. It is very easy to sell the shares. But I think for, in terms of community, it is much better if you, be, if you are active in this thing. How can you incentivize institutional investors to pay more attention to their investments? Yeah, that, that, that's a very good question. There are two ways in doing that. One way is reputation, okay? So name and shame. Basically, okay, if you didn't watch, why should I trust you the next time? Okay. And the other one, try and make them in their own interest to do it. So 
let's try and somehow incentivate them to have a larger number of amount of shares for a longer time. So, for example, nowadays we have institutional investors for one, uh, one week is a long-term <laughs> investor investment, okay? Of course, if you're thinking about a long-term as in one week, what's the point of looking at the corporate governance of a company? But what if I tell you is, okay, you can, you can take it one week, but then you need to pay a transaction cost. If you sell it after six months or one year, there is no transaction cost. You need to fix a threshold, of course, but that will incentivize you to think, well, one year, I would not consider one year as a long term, okay? But still, to compare it to one day, it's a very long term oriented. So you need to make it in their own interest. Has this regulation that you just mentioned been implemented anywhere in the world? No, no, there will be major thought about that, but not implemented because, of course, that will be against the interest of institutional investors that they quite like to do portfolio management. So there will be, of course, causing costs in portfolio management. Have accounting and corporate governance laws improved in Italy and maybe anywhere else in the world since then? Yes, they did. There have been uh, two major reforms. One major, one major reform is very Italian in the sense that it hasn't been exported yet, but I think it would be worth to do it. Basically, Italy decided to, to move the appointment director from the winner-takes-it-all approach. So the one there direct, the shareholder that gets the list of directors gets more votes to get voted to a slate voting system, meaning that there is at least one seat or more in every company left to minority shareholders. So minority shareholders have the right to appoint at least one director. Does one director make a change? Of course, majority rule. But if you want to do something wrong against the law, you don't want to be discovered. That single director could discover it because it is relatively easy to hide it from external shareholder, but it's much more difficult to hide it from an independent director who is actually interested in being a watchdog because that's part of his reputation. So that's, I think, is a very good thing to do it. The other regulation that they change it, actually there was a strong impact at the European level as well, was the auditing regulation. At the time, Italy, you may be surprised of, but Italy had one of the tightest auditing mandatory auditor rotation rules at the time. But Parmat was marked and found a loophole. So basically, you have to change your the principal auditor but you, at the time, but after nine years, but you did not have to change the subsidiary auditors. So what Pamela did, they changed the chief auditor and they kept the, the former chief auditor at subsidiary auditor. Okay. So you have basically the same people auditing those subsidiaries for over 20 years. And they were there was the problem there. On top of it, the chief auditor was not responsible for their job. Nowadays is. So, okay, you can delegate the job, you're still responsible for it. At the time, it wasn't. So basically, it was very easy for the new chief auditor to say, oh, I didn't know about that. You know, I'm not responsible for it. Now they can't, which I think is a very important step. I mean, if it's the chief auditor, then, then probably, yeah, that's a good step. How many people were persecuted after the scandal? There were over 50 people, including uh, the chair, the CEO, well, the chair, CEO, the same person, the chief financial officer, all the members of the board of directors, the main... Uh, partners of the auditing companies, some people in the internal audit staff, some top managers, really, and some also business partners in the banks. Where is the company now? The company, well, the good things about the Parma and the company, you can go to a supermarket and still buy them products. Okay. They each obviously have a new core 
a new company called New Parmalat, moved the business there because the business was okay at the end of the day, okay. Now it's the major owner is, is French. It is a different company if you take it from a corporate governance perspective. But if you take it from a customer's perspective, you will not realize it's a different company. So they have the same product, same brands. From the, the normal person from the street would be like, oh, they all are not. Hmm. Before we finish the interview, what is the legacy of the scandal? Well, the main legacy is that, apart, as I mentioned at the beginning, probably, personally, the biggest legacy is that you know it was right, and then it's much, it's much easier now to teach corporate governance and show the importance of it. I'm an accountant, a teacher at county level, okay, accounting at different levels. Uh, usually accounting is about accounting standards, uh, accounting principles, and people do not, did, did not used to see the link with corporate governance. Now it's, it is very easy to, to point out the link and why corporate governance matters in terms of accounting quality, okay? And the other issue is that Remember when I talked to an Italian ACC officer, the Security and Exchange Commission in Italy, he said, oh, we, it was an informal talk. And he said, oh, we, at the end of the day, we should be thankful to Tanti. Because thanks to Parma, we were able to do important reforms that we wanted to do that we wouldn't be able to do without the Parma scandal. Okay. Because we, they were stricter independence, director duration, for example. And the business was against it. But after Pharma scandal, they were not able to say a word of it. So they, they were, I think at the end of the day, that's something that, of course, you would not like to have another scandal. But sometimes you need to exploit this scandal to move on and use them in the better way possible. Before we finish tonight, do you want to provide our listeners with a platform where they can learn more about you and your work? Yeah, you, you can use LinkedIn. Okay, perfect. Thank you for your time, Professor. It was great to have you here. Oh, thank you for your invitation. It was a pleasure to talk to you.